It's your favorite childbirth educator here, Joni Edelman, and this is Radical Childbirth Education. Education for parents and providers who want the down low on the low down. another episode of the podcast and thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It is your most valuable resource and it is not lost on me when you give it to me. Today we're going to be talking about four questions to ask your care partner during your pregnancy that are not the average questions you're used to asking. But before we get onto the subject matter, again, of course, we're going to just take a minute to talk about our Radical Childbirth Education course the next cohort of which is beginning in March. This course meets for four weeks. We meet for two hours-ish on a Sunday, beginning at 11 Central. That gives us time to do the primarily primary education portion and then also have a question and answer period after. It's based on my in-person course, which gets rave reviews from everyone who takes it. And this class is really designed to arm you with all of the information that you need to have a really empowered hospital birth. Of course, birth classes apply to all kinds of births, regardless of where they occur. But this class focuses on my years of experience working in the hospital and offers you an insight into what the hospital is thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. It gives you access to me and an opportunity to ask specific questions about things that might be occurring in your own pregnancy. And Also, a bunch of great bonuses besides our workbook that goes with the class. There's also a 50-page book that has quick, quick, quick study, quick and dirty study sheets on pretty much every part of birth, labor, and postpartum, and is, I can almost guarantee, better than any book that you have on your shelf because it's going to give all of it to you in one quick place for you to look up. I was just at a birth day before yesterday and noticed when I got to their house, um, to support them before we left for the hospital that the book was open on their table and they were referring these stages of labor and that's the idea with the book is that you can use it anytime to quickly turn to and be like okay i have a question about this here's the answer so that book's included a private facebook group a bunch of other goodies and hopefully really answers all of the questions that you can have Our next cohort begins the first week of March, and you can check it out at my website. It's the number 13moonsbirth.com. And now let's get on with today's subject matter. These questions are my questions based on my experience, and they're not in any particular order. I listed them just what was on my mind at the moment. Oh, I might have to sneeze. Hold on. This is our, um, I think, third attempt at both audio and video recording at the same time, which means I cannot really go back and edit the audio because to edit audio means you also have to edit video and that would take me so long. So we're trying to do this in a one shot, one shot deal and I'm taking a drink. Okay, question one, here we go. Question one to ask your care provider. And these are questions I propose that you ask prior to your hiring them. The question most people ask is what's your C-section rate? That tends to be the most common question and really the only one that most people think about. But these questions are going to go a little bit deeper than that and really get to the heart of how your provider practices. And what we're going to talk about today is also why these questions are important. So the first one is, are you comfortable allowing my pregnancy to go past 42 weeks? 
And most physicians are going to say no to this. Um, and I'll tell you why it's important. Pregnancy lasts on average between 38 and 42 weeks. The uh, average number of days of pregnancy is 280. This is based on a 28-day menstrual cycle. And this number, 280, with the plus or minus two weeks on either side, which most people are pretty familiar with, actually arose from a study done by a Danish physician a few hundred years ago. This was a really limited study done on just a couple of hundred European women and showed that they delivered anywhere between 38 and 42 weeks, with the average day being 280 or thereabouts. And this does tend to be true. Most people will deliver within that window. However, delivering outside of that window is not always problematic. It's not totally abnormal for babies to be born a little bit earlier than that. And also, when left alone, not abnormal for babies to even go past 42 weeks. Now, the reason that most physicians are going to say no to this question is because everyone is concerned about the same thing, and that is infant mortality, the risk of the baby dying. The other sort of potential risk factor here is for preeclampsia, which is one of the more common complications in pregnancy that physicians are always wary of and looking out for. And we're not going to go deep into preeclampsia in this episode. That deserves its own episode. But what I will say about preeclampsia is there are risk factors for preeclampsia that are not modifiable. Your age, what number of pregnancy you are on, one, two, three, four, and your race. You cannot modify those risk factors. Those are existent, but there are modifiable risk factors and there are preemptive sort of steps you can take to prevent preeclampsia. For example, we know that diet is really important, calcium intake is really important, and your overall health is really important. So just assuming that everyone is at a risk for preeclampsia is really misguided. We can't just look at every woman over the age of 40 or every woman who is black or every woman whatever and say, well, your risk for preeclampsia is heightened so we want to induce your labor early. Now there was a study done called the ARRIVE study, which also deserves its own episode, about six or seven years ago that showed that if you induce labor prior or at 39 weeks, your risk of preeclampsia was reduced while your risk of C-section was not necessarily increased. And I don't want to go into that study here because it's very deep, but I just want to say I call BS on all of it and a lot of people do call BS on it. One of the main reasons is it's not a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard in medical studies, which means people are picked at random, assigned a route to take, and then the outcome is observed. This was a study during which people volunteered to be induced, which changes your outcomes, number one. Number two, the C-section rate in this study is lower by more than half of our C-section rate nationally which makes zero sense. But the reason for this, I believe, and I think it's probably true, is that every person who was participating in this study knew that they were participating in it. And we also know that any medical study is uh, always impacted by the observer, right? The observer changes the outcome in, in some way. So I really, I really am skeptical of these wide studies that look at information and just boop, here's the outcome. This study was actually designed to reduce the rate 
of induction and it actually increased the rate of induction. But again, we're not going into that in depth today. What I will say is that if your doctor brings up the ARRIVE trial in your conversations with them, then it behooves you to study the ARRIVE trial on your own. And if they tell you that their induction, you know, that they induce people at X weeks, the appropriate question for you then is why? Why do you induce someone at 39, 40, or 41 weeks? What are your reasons for induction? Most of the time, you're going to hear something about infant mortality because nobody wants a dead baby, of course. And there are studies that show that your risk of infant mortality goes up after 42 weeks. Now, this is super tricky territory because there's a lot of factors at play here. The first one is we don't know when we're looking at studies for outcomes that are just talking about mortality. We don't know the prenatal health of the people being involved. We don't know the pregnancy health of the people and be involved. There are so many factors that we don't have information about. The other thing is we don't know if a baby born at 42 weeks versus 40 who dies, who would have died if you'd been pregnant past 42 weeks, would not have died after birth anyway, right? Because in some cases, babies who have birth defects for like, let's say, um, for example, a heart defect that's undiagnosed, which is pretty uncommon because we do, you know, a lot of people do anatomy scans at the, you know, around 20 weeks. So we have that data. But also there are other circumstances that where things aren't compatible with life and we don't know that until the baby's born and the baby dies after birth, right? So just to say having your baby by X day of pregnancy equals a lower mortality rate is really misguided. And even if your, you personally decided to opt for an induction prior to 42 weeks. The reason that this question is important is because it goes to a wider conversation about intuition and mother's well-being. If a mother says, I don't feel like anything's wrong with me and I would like to wait, and the physician insists on induction, that begs the question, who's, who writes the law? Like, who, who makes the rule, and why do we have to necessarily follow that rule? The length of pregnancy can vary from person to person. And I often use the example of a tree, a fruit tree, in my classes, because we have a pear tree on our property, and the tree blooms essentially all at the same time. All of the flowers open up within a couple of days of each other. But when the pears ripen, they ripen within a wide range. And I wouldn't consider the first or the last pair to be abnormal. I would look at those pairs and, and I would be grateful that they either came early or late. If every pair on the tree ripened at exactly the same time, what would we do with all of those pairs? First of all, it's a lot of pairs. And secondly, that wouldn't make any sense because nothing in nature is timed that way. Nothing in nature is exact, right? Everything has a window that is normal. And one of the things that is most disturbing to me in maternal medicine is that we expect everyone to behave in the same way. We expect the same 
outcome for every human being. And that defies nature on a whole. And we are at the mercy of nature, truly. And to try to outsmart nature really doesn't help us. It really causes more problems than any other thing. We're never going to outsmart either, regardless of how you look at it, God or billions of years of evolution. We're not going to because it's perfectly designed regardless of how you see how it was designed. So the idea that inducing someone at X day avoids Y outcome is just simply false. And we just don't have enough data widely received and taken in to know what really is true. Another part of it is when we're talking about studies and we're talking about mortality and all of that, there are lots of states in the United States where midwifery um, either isn't regulated or where it's illegal to have a baby with a midwife at home. And their statistics are not counted in these studies. So I know midwives who practice unlicensed all over the country and their statistics are not counted right? And those midwives almost never induce labor for any reason. Almost never. And they almost never have dead babies. So the fact that the medical model says this is the expiration date after which it's no longer safe for you to be pregnant is really more directed towards the medical model's lack of understanding of birth and fear of litigation. Because if you have a dead baby, you are likely statistically to sue your doctor. That's just true. And unfortunately, that's the way that they have begun to approach all care because they're afraid. This idea of due dates and having this window is brand new. It's brand new. It's within the last few hundred years and people have been giving birth for a, a 40, 50,000 years. So for the last few hundred, we've used this number. And previous to that, we just looked at the sky. We relied on the moon and we knew that between the ninth full moon and the 10th full moon, our baby would be born. Women looked at the sky and said, my last bleed was at this stage of the moon. And therefore I expect the baby will come at this stage somewhere between these two full moons, right? Which is such a, a more relaxing way to look at it. And the pressure around the due date looms large for folks. And it's really hard because it's really drilled into us as a culture that we're supposed to have a baby by our due date. And most folks feel really uncomfortable going past their due date. Or at the very least, even if they're comfortable going past their due date, they're still really looking at the calendar with that big X mark. I have a really great handout that I have created for the birth book that comes with the class that I will link in the show notes for you to, to pull up that shows the difference between, you know, post dates and post term and what that means and sort of gives you some guidelines on decision making in terms of how to decide when is an appropriate time to induce labor if you feel like you need to do that. But again, this question goes back to, does your doctor trust you? Or does your doctor expect you to trust them? And when physicians say, well, I'm an expert, they are an expert in pathology and in problems, but they are not an expert in your body 
or your baby. So those are really important factors to consider when you're thinking about whether or not you will take a physician's advice about a certain intervention versus saying, nope, I would rather listen to my own body and my baby and make that decision myself. So the second question then after the, will you let my pregnancy go to 42 weeks is what do you do if my blood pressure rises to 140 over 90 or above? So if they say at this point they would recommend induction, ask them why. And here's why this question matters. The risk of preeclampsia, again, can be sort of connected to elevated blood pressures. What we see, the blood pressure and the preeclampsia are not themselves connected. In other words, having a higher baseline blood pressure when you become pregnant does not put you at risk for preeclampsia. What happens is it gives you less of a window for your blood pressure to rise. And the reason that this is important is because at the end of your pregnancy, by week 35 or so, your blood volume in your body has increased to almost double what it was when you started. And so if you just logically think about what happens to your blood pressure, if your blood volume increases, we would expect your blood pressure to rise. We would expect a slight, a slight elevation in your blood pressure. And in fact, if I have a client whose blood pressure doesn't change at all at the last of their pregnancy, I'm actually concerned because we want to see that elevation because it is indicative of a blood volume expansion, which you need to manage your blood loss after, pregnant, after the birth, right? So just having an elevated blood pressure alone is not indication for induction. And what's really interesting is if you have an elevated blood pressure, quite often your physician will recommend induction and send you to the hospital for induction. And even if they run labs at the hospital and they discover that your labs are totally normal, if you're already there for an induction, they're just going to keep inducing you. They're not going to say, oh, never mind, you're fine, because your physician's already started the wheels turning. So it's happening. What is a better course of action should your blood pressure be elevated? There are a few options here. The first one is, do you typically experience an elevated blood pressure at the physician's office? Lots of people have white coat, you know, what's called white coat syndrome or sort of just a fear of the doctor in general. And so their blood pressure naturally rises. The other thing that's important is every physician should know that blood pressures should not be taken until the client has been sitting for some time and at rest. If you come into the office and your blood pressure is immediately taken, which it almost always is, and they tell you it's elevated, but they'll take it at the end of the appointment, what they really should be doing is taking it at the end of the appointment to begin with. I don't, for my clients, birth clients, if I'm taking a blood pressure, I don't take a blood pressure until after we've been sitting together for 20 or 30 minutes because Everyone is a little bit nervous, almost always at the beginning, and it, what we find is that our blood pressure will stabilize into our normal range after we've had a minute to sit. The other problem with basing any decision on induction on a blood pressure is a blood pressure alone is not indicative of a disease process, and high blood pressure is not itself pathological for the baby. It doesn't cause problems for the baby. In fact, what we find is if we were to take a woman who had higher blood pressure and we were to medicate her to lower that blood pressure, her baby would actually respond negatively to that reduction because the body, the uterus becomes 
accustomed to a certain blood pressure for perfusion, for blood to go into the uterus. And to reduce it takes that blood pressure away, right? Takes it down. This is one of the more common reasons that people end up in a C-section, actually, and don't even realize it. They go into the hospital for a low blood pressure or for a high blood pressure. They get induced. They get an epidural, which lowers their blood pressure always. Epidurals do that. It's part of an epidural. It's part of how it works. It's a vasodilator. And so you can expect blood pressure to drop. So much so, in fact, that they have epi. They give you epi usually in your epidural testosterone to prevent that drop. Well, if you take someone who has a blood pressure of 140 over 90, or let's say 150 over 100, you give them an epidural and reduce their blood pressure into the normal range. Let's say it's 130 over 70 now. Well, your baby's not accustomed to that blood pressure. So chances are your baby's going to react negatively and usually have decelerations in their heart rate. And of course, the hospital's monitoring you continuously, which means you're going into an emergency C-section for something that was not an emergency. You see what I'm saying? So the other piece of this is the hospital doesn't medicate a blood pressure that's under about 160 over 100. They don't normally give you anything to lower that because they recognize that that blood pressure is not necessarily pathological or isn't dangerous to you at that point. The real problem with high blood pressure over the long term is it weakens the walls of the vessels because that, think of it like um, water in a hose. If you turned your hose on full blast, but you kinked it, and so that water pressure was continually building up inside the hose and never was able to be released, eventually the hose would probably sprout some leaks, right? It would start to leak here and there along the hose line. Same with your vessels. But that doesn't happen in a very short, in the, you know, in the short amount of time that pregnancy is, you know, relative to your whole life. Blood pressure is often, high blood pressure is often called the silent killer because it doesn't have a lot of symptoms, high blood pressure alone. And that's an important thing to remember because if you just have an elevated blood pressure and you're absent any other symptoms, you're probably not sick. Because preeclampsia, which is the thing they're worried about, which has as a feature of it an elevated blood pressure, is not without symptoms. Those symptoms include numbness and tingling in your hands and feet, blurred vision, spots in your eyes, uh, pain in the upper quadrant of your abdomen. And those are questions that they ask you when you go in. And that's why they're asking you those things. In the absence of any, any of those things with just a high blood pressure, you are not that's not diagnosable. The other thing is to diagnose someone with preeclampsia or with a, tr with a pregnancy-induced hypertension, you have to have those two elevated blood pressures four hours apart. And almost no physician's office is going to do that because you're not going to sit there for four hours. And if you did sit there for four hours, your blood pressure is probably going to be higher at the end because no one wants to sit in the doctors for four hours. That being said, if your blood pressure is always elevated when you go to the doctor, an option is to take your blood pressure at home, to refuse a blood pressure at the office, and instead to take your blood pressure upon rising in the morning and jot it down and take it with you. You can buy a blood pressure cuff that is automatic, inexpensive off Amazon. I, I recommend the arm cuff, not the wrist. The arm tends to be more accurate, and I will link one of those for you in the show notes as well. But should your blood pressure start to elevate and be repeatedly elevated at the physician's office, taking it at home can be a good option. 
thinking about this from a logical perspective, if your blood pressure is elevated at the physician's office and your physician is anxious about your elevated blood pressure and says something like, we have to watch your blood pressure because if it goes up, we're going to need to induce your labor or anything like that, chances are you're going to be anxious about your blood pressure. And anxiety increases your blood pressure. So what's going to happen? You're going to walk into the physician's office with an elevated blood pressure because of anxiety. So taking it at home can be one way to manage that like extra risk factor. And the other thing is the blood pressure alone, like I said, is not a diagnosis. Blood pressure is a symptom of something. So before your physician sends you to the hospital for an induction, it's appropriate to ask for a CMP, a complete metabolic panel, in addition to a CBC, which is two different blood value, two different lab values that you can draw. And then also a 24-hour urine, which looks for protein in your urine. If you do a pee stick at your doctor's or midwife's office where you just pee on the stick and it's got those little squares and they change color and they tell us, you know, what your sugar, if you're putting, if there's sugar in your urine, if there's protein in your urine. If you are dehydrated or you haven't eaten in a while, the protein in your urine can be elevated. So there have been lots of studies that show that those pee sticks that we do at the doctor's are really not warranted and actually uh, don't give us really usable information in the absence of other symptoms. I don't even routinely do urine stick tests because it's just not going to give me usable data, really. If I'm worried about someone's health, I'm going to have them do labs, and I'm going to look at their kidney and their liver function instead. So the answer, the correct answer, the best answer from your physician is if my blood pressure is 140 over 90, what are you going to do? The correct answer is... I'm going to retake your blood pressure, I'm going to ask you to take it at home, and I'm going to run labs before I do any other thing. If the answer is I'm going to recommend induction, then that's a red flag and you need to find another doctor. Next question. Question number three on the list is what is your induction rate? So induction and C-section are highly correlative. If your doctor can't tell you what their induction rate is, it's because they don't know and they're not paying attention. And an induction rate really shouldn't be over 10%. It really shouldn't be. People should be going into labor on their own without intervention because that is the way birth works best, best when it's left to do what it's physiologically meant to do. When we interrupt the flow of labor, we interrupt the hormones and that very fine symphony of hormones that occurs not just in labor but prior to the onset of labor, we interrupt the whole pattern. There is no point at which you can intervene in labor and not interrupt what happens afterwards. And when you interrupt what happens afterwards, you increase your risks of everything, including C-section, uh, more serious vaginal tearing, all the things your baby having problems, you having problems, hemorrhage, you name it. So asking what their induction rate is can help you understand, number one, how patient are they and how much do they listen to their clients versus how reactive are they. And since inductions are correlated with C-sections, really, what is the risk that you could be at risk for a C-section? If their induction rate is more than 10% and they tell you they induced because of preeclampsia or, or whatever, 
then you want to know what their patient population is doing because healthy, normal pregnancies with a good care provider, really your risk of those complications are reduced greatly, significantly, really. And what I see that's really troubling to me now is that physicians really don't they may understand nutritionally the importance of things like calcium and protein in your diet during your pregnancy, but they don't teach people that. Uh, so I don't know that they understand it because they don't teach people that, but that's one of the primary things that I'm talking about with people. We are talking about nutrition ad nauseum during my care with folks. Every single visit we're talking about how much protein are they getting a day? Are they having trouble getting that? And how much calcium are they getting? Because those are two modifiable factors that reduce your risk of preeclampsia greatly and thereby reduce your risk of needing an induction greatly. I have no explanation for why physicians don't discuss this information except that they don't have time or they haven't read the studies or they're just looking at the studies that show them the rates of preeclampsia overall. And they're not taking into consideration the fact that it is within our ability to modify our own risk factors. You can't modify, again, your age. You can't modify what number of pregnancy it is for you. You can't modify your race, but you can greatly modify your diet and nutrition. And off the cuff, I'm going to say 95-ish percent of what goes on and what goes wrong in pregnant people can be traced back to nutrition. As a country, our nutrition is really poor, and that is not the fault of the people in our country. There's a, it's a multifaceted problem, but it is a problem nonetheless. And when we start talking to women about their nutrition early on in their pregnancy and making sure they're doing all the things to get really good nutrition and really high levels of protein and calcium, we find risks greatly reduced. So those are important things to know and to consider. I would even part to this question about induction rate to be what are you inducing people for and find out why. If they say post dates, well, at what day are you inducing and why? If they say preeclampsia, okay, well, what's your rate of that happening, right? And unless they're caring for a population of people that is really um, underserved, right, they shouldn't have a huge number of people with preeclampsia unless their practice caters to women over 40 or women who are black or women who just automatically have poor nutrition, right? And those are risk factors in terms of the physician that they can't change depending on where they are. For example, if you're seeing a physician and you have, let's say, you know, state, your insurance is state funded, you might be seeing lower, you might be seeing a physician who also sees lower income clients and lower income clients do tend to have poor nutrition because money and nutrition are connected, right? It's expensive to eat really, really well. It's that, that's where our country really fails is, is the, the cost of food and the access to good, healthy food is limited especially in inner cities and places where people don't have reliable transportation or they live in a food desert or any of those factors. So that, that's a, an important thing to consider. When, not just how often they're inducing, but why are they inducing? 
Question number four, and our final question is, are you open to an alternative to the standard glucose tolerance test? So the glucose tolerance test is a test that you take around the beginning of your third trimester of pregnancy. And if you're not there yet and you haven't been pregnant before, this is a test where you go in fasting into a lab, you drink a, a drink that has lots and lots of sugar in it, uh, depending on what your physician decides. It could be 50, 75, or 100 grams. And then you wait for a couple of hours and they test your blood sugar. So they test it prior and then they have you drink the drink and then they test it after. And they see what happens with your blood sugar value in that time frame. Now, in a healthy person, your pancreas will respond to the onslaught of a bunch of sugar by producing a bunch of insulin to reduce your blood sugar number. So by the time you get to the two hour mark, your insulin levels or sugar levels in your blood kind of return to normal. There are so many problems with the glucose tolerance test. So many, and that's its own episode. And I, I just realized that I say it, that's its own episode a lot, but it just is. There are so many limitations to this test and there are so many problems with this test. So let's start off with some of the problems for this test and why you might want something different. The first problem is it requires you to be fasting. So you cannot have eaten at least eight hours prior. And during pregnancy, no one should be going eight hours without food, except for when you're sleeping, right? And then you should ideally be, you should ideally be eating right before you go to bed something really high in protein, and then eating again really as soon as you rise to, to stave off big swings in your blood sugar and also nausea as well. If you've experienced nausea throughout your pregnancy and it didn't go away at the end of the first trimester, not eating for eight hours is not going to be good for you. That's the first thing. The second thing is it requires you to drink this very, very high sugar drink. And unless you are regularly drinking things that have this much sugar in it, which please, I hope you're not, because it is not good for your body. Unless you are regularly drinking something very sugary like this, your body is not going to like it. It is not going to feel good. And that is in itself a problem. One can of soda, like Pepsi or Coke, has less sugar in it than this does uh, around 39 i think 40 40 grams which is less than the smallest amount of sugar you get in these tests which is 40. Um, if you are not someone second kind of part two to that is if you are not someone who eats a lot of sugar regularly it's likely to make you feel really really ill because your body does not know what to do with it okay that's your second problem your third problem with this test in my experience has been that people who overall have a really healthy diet um, and don't eat a lot of sugar will often have false positives to this test. Which brings me to my fourth problem with this test, which is that the singular test alone is not a diagnosis. If you have an elevated result at the first test, they make you do a second test, which drinks in which you drink even more sugar and you wait even longer for the blood draw to be done. So you're fasting twice and you're nervous now because you're scared because nobody wants pregnancy. Nobody wants diabetes. Nobody wants to have it. It's not fun. So 
that's the next problem with it. In my experience personally, my healthiest clients often have had false positives, my doula clients. My vegans, my vegetarians, they will often throw a positive on this test and then have their second result be negative when they do the longer test, which in and of itself is like, great. So they spiked the first test, they did the second test and it proved that they were okay, except that here's the problem with that. The stress level increase that occurs in the person taking the test is high. And you have to wait to get your first result back, right? From your doctor to say you failed. And then you have to then also take another one, right? So you now have to do it two times. And that's not good. That was the music. The end of my podcast music just came on. And we're not going to re-record this because we're 36 minutes in. So we're just going with it. We're muting it and we're going. So that's another limitation of the test. What are the alternatives? That's a good question. Oh, one more. Not a limitation, but a downside of that test is that you're talking about like just straight sugar. It is not good for your body in general. And you're just just literally glucose, just poof, right? So not food-based, not, it's just straight sugar, which hopefully no one is ever intaking. You know, as you'd be like eating spoonfuls of sugar, which, you know, sometimes you need a spoonful of sugar, baby, but hopefully not when you're pregnant. So there are alternatives to this test. And the one that I like the best, there's something called the fresh test, which is a different type of um, this, not this soda sort of sugary drink that they give you. It's a mix and it's, you know, organic. And so it's generally better for you in terms of just the sugar. But that's not even the test I like best. The test I like best is to actually not test at all. And this is the way lots of countries do operate. They only test you if you have risk factors. And risk factors would include things like you have a history of uh, pregnant, you know, gestational diabetes or a history of gestational diabetes in your family, or you have pre-existing sugar problems for some reason. What we found is a lot of times this test is just picking up people that actually already are struggling with blood sugar issues for whatever reason. Um, and that, that kind of goes into what causes diabetes and how does it work and what's going on with the pancreas, which is your insulin production organ, and why is it not working? And of course, most people know there's two types of diabetes and they both are very different. But type 2 diabetes, which is basically my body is exhausted and Usually this is from the pancreas working so hard to keep up with a diet that's really high in carbs and sugar that it starts to kind of wear out and it gets sick. And then type 1 diabetes is the one that, that most people that are people are kind of born with and this is an actual malfunction and it's not something that is modifiable in terms of risk factor. So what we find is that a lot of times we're just picking up blood sugar levels that were actually already elevated prior to pregnancy, but no one was testing their blood sugar regularly. So they didn't know that. This is a problem in American culture widely because we do have a high rate of diabetes in our country and the numbers and ranges for di for diagnosis of diabetes or pre-diabetes, they keep moving sort of down to try to catch people earlier and earlier. And the reason for that is wider, and it has to do with our diets as a whole. But the other problem is 
that there is a lot of weight bias in our country. There's a lot of bias against folks that are overweight and assumptions that weight equals poor health, you know, higher weight equals poor health. And that goes into the BMI. And then that goes into a whole other conversation. But to just look at a person and assume that they might get diabetes because they are a certain size is actually fat bias, right? That's sizeism or as it's known. And I experienced this with my last pregnancy. Um, I had a big baby with my fifth pregnancy. And so going into my sixth pregnancy, the assumption would, was from the medical community that I would be diabetic. And I knew that was going to be the assumption because I'm a nurse. So I cut them off at the pass and I wasn't seeing a doctor, so it didn't matter. But I knew that if I went to the hospital at any point for any reason, including during my labor, that they were going to look at my chart. And if there wasn't a glucose tolerance test on there, and I had a big baby, which I knew I would because my previous baby was 11 pounds, so I was expecting a 10 plus pound baby for sure, that they would assume I was diabetic. They would want to do blood sugars on the baby and I would have a fight on my hands in terms of having them not do repeated blood sugar testing on the baby. And if I wanted to go home, that would be a battle and so on and so forth. So what I recommend my clients do if they want to do their sugar at all, and I don't require it because there's a lot to be said for the mother's own intuition here as well. But what I do if people want to know is I actually have them just buy an inexpensive glucose monitor off of Amazon. You can buy them for like $30 or even less. I have them take their blood sugar when they wake up. So that's your fasting, right? You don't have to go to the lab. You just prick your finger. What's your sugar? You write it down. Eat your breakfast and then take your blood sugar an hour or two after you eat. And that's what we call postprandial. And then give me those numbers and do that for a week or two weeks or three weeks. Or watch what happens with your numbers if you change your diet. What this does for women is so much more valuable than this one standalone test that is so limited. What this does for women is, one, it puts them in charge of their own health, right? If they take their blood sugar when they wake up and then they eat a muffin, and they don't have any protein, and then they take their blood sugar two hours later, and they find that it's elevated, 120, let's say, 130. And then they the next day, they take their blood sugar when they wake up, and then they eat a breakfast of eggs and bacon and toast and take their blood sugar an hour later, and it's 100. Well, now they've put together what's happening in their body when they eat certain foods. And I just had a client recently say, you know what I just discovered about my blood sugar is if I eat a muffin or pastry, and I pair it with a protein, my blood sugar will be normal. And if I don't pair it with a protein, my blood sugar will remain a little elevated, right? So we're not talking about not eating muffins at all. We're talking about what happens if I eat a muffin and I add an egg or a bacon or something like that, right? And this gives us a wider picture as human beings on how our bodies are impacted by our diets. And it's a really fascinating experiment to do, even if you're not pregnant, to eat certain foods, you know, what so often is like a breakfast food in America, like a donut, and see what happens with your blood sugar. And why does that matter? And how do you feel, right? Keeping a food journal, well, I ate this this day, this was my blood sugar, and I was exhausted by noon and, and wanted to take a nap. Or... I had a big breakfast with three eggs and two pieces of bacon and two pieces of toast, and I was still feeling great at five, right? Looking at those 
that wider spectrum of information, not just a very narrow, you know, not just a very narrow picture of what's going on. Physicians like the glucose tolerance test because it's easy. They send you, you do one thing. It's easy for them, right? It's not necessarily the best thing for you, but it is the easiest thing for them. So why not do it? Why not just do it this way? And if your physician argues with you about it and says, no, I don't allow a standard, that's the only test we do, then I push back. I would push back. Why won't you allow me to take my blood sugar? I never drink 50 grams of sugar at one time, so it doesn't apply to me, right? It, why do you need me to take a test that pours three or four or five times the amount of sugar into my body than I would ever consume in one sitting? Why is that your gold standard as opposed to me eating normally and observing my own blood sugar? And this points to the wider problem overall with the medical industrial complex in America and the way medicine operates. And that is that the physician is the expert and you are subservient. Your education, your knowledge, your wisdom, your intuition is all secondary to what the physician says. And that's just false. It shouldn't be that way, but when people argue with physicians, they just don't, they don't want to be argued with. It takes too much time. It takes too much energy. I don't want to have to explain things to you. I just want you to do what I want you to do and go on your merry way because I have too many other people to take care of to be spending 15 minutes talking with you about your glucose test. The other problem with this test is even if you take the test and then your, long, your longer test comes back negative, you are always going to have this sort of blemish in your chart that you had a negative, you know, that you had a, you failed, you quote unquote failed your glucose tolerance test. And that has long-term care impact issues, right? Because now you go to the hospital, you have your baby and they go, well, we see you failed your glucose tolerance test. Because they're looking at all your labs. When you go there, they have your history, right? They have, usually they're able to pull up labs depending on what hospital you're going to and where your labs have been, they're at least able to see your records and they might be able to see everything you've ever tested for. It sort of depends on the hospital system and the way that their records run. But in any case, it's always there in your chart with your physician. So the next time you get pregnant, now now they're going to be like, well, you had that, you know, you had that, you failed that test. And again, the even wider implication is the fact that this is a really stressful event for the pregnant person the diagnosis or the failure, even if it's not a diagnosis, is points us in, in, into an area of stress that's un, undue and not helpful in any way. I have very healthy clients who have failed both the first and second version of that test and have been able to modify their diet and keep their sugar normal for the rest of their pregnancy. But it goes without saying that the stress of doing that creates an added layer of stuff you don't need in a, in a time in your life that's already so new and different. We know the effects on stress are much worse than even you know, slightly elevated blood sugar would be, right? We have low birth weight, we have preterm labor and all of those sorts of things that are connected with stress levels in pregnancy. So it behooves you 
to ask if there's an alternative and if they're okay with the alternative and if they're not okay with the alternative to ask why and to even push and say, well, I don't want to do the glucose tolerance test. Are you going to make me? And again, this is a red flag. If they say yes, if your doctor says they're going to make you do anything, it's a red flag because they're not in charge of you. They shouldn't be making you do anything. All of the decisions in your pregnancy should be yours. And that's not the way that medicine really operates in America, but it should be because taking a protocol, developing it and applying it to every pregnant person ever is ineffectual because every pregnant person is not the same. Every baby is not the same. Every body is not the same. And to behave like they are really puts everyone at a disadvantage because it, it puts us all into the category of risk that, risk that might not exist. Dare I say, if you are a healthy person who moves their body, eats normally, and doesn't experience elevated blood sugars in your life, that you don't need that test at all. And it's for the physician more than it is any other thing. And again, in European countries, they don't do that test unless you have risk factors. So in America, in a, in a culture where medicine is a business and insurance and everybody's making money at it, all of those tests make money for people. So there's no real motivation to not do the test, right, for the people doing it and the people requesting it. In countries where medicine is socialized, they look at the wider picture and say, well, it costs a lot of money to do this test and it falsely diagnoses X number of people and only positively catches this number of people. And this is how that changes our outcomes. And why does that even matter? Why does that even matter? Uncontrolled diabetes and pregnancy can be problematic, right? It can equal a really large baby. It can equal the baby having problems after birth and can have other implications, but that doesn't mean that everyone should have to submit to the same exact test with the same exact parameters. Okay, that concludes our four questions for today. What other questions can you think of? This is a good exercise that you might wanna to take to a care provider before you hire them. And a reminder that regardless of where you are in your pregnancy, you can ask these questions. And if you don't like the answer to them, you can change providers at any time. All you have to do is find another provider willing to take you on. Even as late as the very end of your pregnancy, you can change providers. And I recommend it. It's much, much better that you take your bag and your baby and you get walking than it is to stay in a practice with a practitioner who doesn't honor your wishes, trust you as the pregnant person, and respect the things that you want or don't want. All right, thanks for joining me and happy birthing. Information on this podcast should not be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Music